Our reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is God's word. Our Father, what is very clear as we come to this uh, short passage this morning is that uh, we need your help. We need you to reveal uh, truth to us. We can't work it out on our own. So, Heavenly Father, uh, Jesus Christ, Son and Spirit, please reveal uh, the truth of your word to us so that we understand it, so that it changes us, so that we see the world rightly and therefore worship you. Amen. Verse 25, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. You know, this is the only time in the Gospel accounts when we, Jesus is recorded as praising his Father. I mean, there's a parallel in, uh, in Luke's Gospel, Luke 11, and there he gives thanks uh, to God. I praise it, we're told in Luke 11, Jesus thanked his Father full of joy. So the only time where Jesus is recorded as praising God, Father, I praise you. And what does he praise God for, the only time it's recorded? Very striking. What does he praise God for? I praise you, Father, that well, you hide the truth from some and reveal it to others. It's interesting, isn't it? I wouldn't have guessed that. That's the only thing that Jesus is recorded as praising his Father for. It's unusual, isn't it? Surprising. That you've hidden the truth from some and revealed it to others. Slightly unsettling little passage. Uh, these um, Verses 25 and 26. Jesus, are you saying it, it's bad to be wise, but it's good to be childish? Because I'm not sure I run with that. Um, 
I mean, I'm not quite so stupid as to stand here before you this morning and say, do you know what, I consider myself quite wise and really rather learned. I'm not going to admit that to you, although probably in my heart that truth is there, and I think it's probably in yours. Would you prefer to describe yourself as wise or immature and childish? Which would you, I mean, I'm taking you'd go for the wise. None of us are going to... I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. So it's, it's better, you're better off to be like a child than to be wise and learned. It's a bit awkward, isn't it? I mean, number of us here, we're, I mean, let's be honest, we don't want to blow our trumpets. We're quite successful at what we do. And um, we get a bit irritated when people criticize us for um, being a little foolish to take the Christian faith seriously or foolish to even start thinking about the Christian faith. So we don't want to be called children. We want to be wise and learned. It's a bit awkward that Jesus would say such a thing as this. For much of this turn, then, we're, we're turning back to uh, Matthew's Gospel and Matthew chapter 11. Uh, some, um, mainly in the evening, actually, we, uh, we got uh, as far as chapter 11, verse 24, uh, by the middle of last year. And really, we pick it up today at verse 25. And this section, chapter 11 to 13, it's really one section in Matthew's Gospel. And if you wanted to summarize it, I, I, so you'd summarize it as uh, the inevitable growth of the kingdom or the kingdom encounters opposition but will triumph in the end. Snazzy, huh? Uh, let's just run with the growth of the kingdom. It might be memorable over the next few weeks. But I guess in truth, that's what you see. Jesus saying, my kingdom, my authority, how people respond to me, it will inevitably dominate the whole of the universe for eternity. That, you, that will happen, but lots of people will oppose it. It will cause hostility. It will cause division. And uh, particularly in chapter 12, you get a lot of that, a lot of examples of that. Before in chapter 13, he gives a whole number of parables, famous parables, explaining just that truth, uh, that that will happen. And so we start off this little section, and really we're only in verses 25 to 27 today, really. Just three, uh, three verses. But it explains what's going on. That... God will reveal truth to the childlike, but withhold it from those who consider themselves wise. Now we need to unpack that a little bit more, but that is essentially what he's saying. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Three questions. I want to ask three questions uh, to help us uh, try and unpick what's here, and that'll take half our time. And then uh, when we've done that, we want to push it in three directions how it uh, hits our lives. So the three questions, this is just make sure we understand it rightly. Three questions, what's hidden? Who are the children? Who are the wise and learned? I mean, it should be fairly obvious, I hope. And then we'll spend most of our time on uh, what, 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 difference, what difference does it make? Three questions then. What actually is hidden? Verse 25, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned, revealed them to little children. Okay, what are these things? Uh, chocolate eggs at Easter? Probably not. Um, what are these things? Well, verse 27, I think, is helpful. All things have been committed to me by my Father. 
No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So, verse 25, God hides and reveals these things. Verse 27, the thing that is revealed is the relationship that God the Father has with his Son, Jesus Christ, God the Son. That's what's hidden or revealed. The intimate relationship between Father and Son. Or, you get another good example of this just to, to persuade you. If you flick on just a couple of pages to chapter 16, chapter 16 and verse 15, <clears throat> you get very much the same idea. Uh, chapter 16, uh, Jesus is saying, uh, who's everyone, who does everyone think I am? Chapter 16, verse 14, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Uh, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This is not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. What is it that the father reveals to Peter? The fact that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, and he has a relationship with the living God. He's his son. Okay. So what is hidden that people, some people will get and some people will not get? What is hidden is that Jesus Christ is Messiah, promised king, but more acutely that he has a relationship with his God and Father that is unique. Oh, big deal, big deal, you might think. Let's pause on that a little bit, though. Because verse 27, there is an extraordinary intimacy here between the Father and the Son. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows. Now, I think this, this may be unfair, um, but it won't stop me. I think the um, no one really knows. We often use that uh, perhaps critically or negatively. So someone might come along and say to someone here, your husband's a great guy. And the wife says, yeah, well, no one really knows him but me. Um, there's an information I have. Sometimes we use it critically. Or um, you work for your boss. She just seems delightful. Yeah, no one knows her except for me. I have to work with her pretty closely. So maybe we use it more negatively. But, of course, it can be used very positively. Imagine a scenario. Uh, you say to someone, your husband, he seems like a terrific guy. And the wife says, oh, no one knows how good he is but me. He really is a sensational husband. Absolutely wonderful. He makes me flourish. He brings me joy and delight. He is the most wonderful man in the world. Now, let me commend that to wives. Um, <laughs> particularly my own. Uh, the... Um, now, if someone came out with that, you'd think to yourself, that's a, that's a bit odd. And yet, I take it, you, you would be a bit intrigued. You for real? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Why? Why so good? I mean, that, there'd be something, you'd, you'd, be, you'd be sucked in, wouldn't you, let's be honest. You'd be drawn into that, you'd want to know. I mean, just simply in the workplace, you know, your boss, she seems like a, a pretty wonderful uh, woman, you have no idea. She makes my heart sing every day I come into the office. <laughs> what? How can, what? You're taking the mickey. No, 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 I'm serious. Why? What does she do? What's so good? 
You'd be, you'd, again, you'd be sucked in despite yourself. You couldn't resist. I mean, you don't have to be as nosy as me, but you just have to be pulled in and you'd, you'd want to know. And it's that sort of sense that Jesus is saying here. I have an intimacy with the Father that is you. No one knows how good he is but me. He is so good. Oh. And you've been knocking around with me for a few months now, disciples. Uh, but you, you don't really understand me. Only my Father really gets me. But we've seen you, yeah, but you don't know. There's a depth of knowing here that's, that's really very wonderful. And Jesus says, you, I can let you in. You'll never work it out for yourselves. I have to let you in. I have to reveal this to you. So what is hidden? What is hidden is the fact that God the Father, God the Son, have an extraordinary relationship, and we can join it. It's absolutely captivating. That's a hidden truth to some revealed to others. That's what's hidden. Now, who are the little children? So this truth is revealed to little children. Um, The word would be uh, uh, toddlers, um, preschoolers, uh, the young. I mean, when they're saying little children, is small, small children. Now, what is this? Um, Jesus is essentially saying you can only, well, you can only really be a Christian if you're like a toddler. Now, that isn't why we sing these children's songs, to encourage a sort of regression amongst us. You may think, oh, I don't like the children's songs. Well, it's not, well you have to learn them if you're going to be a Christian. It's not, he's not saying um, that sort of... But what is a child like when they're that age? I mean, it can't be, a, it can't be literally children that Jesus is speaking about. Because remember chapter 16, Blessed are you, Simon Peter, that my God the Father has revealed this to you. Peter is a hulk of a fisherman. He's not a toddler. So it's not literally true. It's an attitude. But what is a a child of three, four like? Dependent. Dependent upon a parent. A three-year-old, a four-year-old, they may have a little flouncing moment or two um, in your household. They may have a moment where they say, whatever it is, Dotty make the cakes in the kitchen. Dotty make the cakes. I don't need you, mummy. I don't need you, daddy. Dotty make the cakes. And Dotty repaints the walls with flour and eggs and then eventually says, mummy make the cakes uh, and omits her help. Now, the, the, the toddlers, they may have a sort of moment of flounce uh, about them, but they, they need help. They're dependent. A toddler needs parents to cook for them, parents to clean for them. Uh, someone to clothe them. They're dependent. They need adults for, to provide um, shelter and love. They need help. They're dependent upon adults. That's the point of a toddler. And Jesus is saying the appropriate way then to relate to God is with childlike trust. Help. Daddy, do it. God, do it. God, do it. I can't do it. That's the appropriate way to relate to him. That's who the children are. The children and the little children, those who are trusting, a dependence upon God. They're the children. Third thing then, who are the wise and learned? Perhaps this needs a bit more careful uh, definition. Jesus is not commending stupidity, you'll be pleased to know. Or maybe not. But uh, he's not commending stupidity. A little later on, a couple of chapters on, chapter 23, he will commend the wise men of the Old Testament. 
chapter 23, verse 34. It's why, you know, the, 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 he lumps together prophets and wise men as the models of Christian living. So there's clearly in Jesus' mind good wise and bad wise. Here is bad wise, bad wisdom. Now, if it's a contrast to children, what is it? Well, just self-sufficiency. If the toddler says, I need help, the wise and learned says, I don't need help. I don't need anyone. I'm fine. That's very much a modern culture. I listened the other day to um, half of an interview that Frank Skinner gave. Frank Skinner, the comedian, I think he's a funny man, you may not. But um, uh, he's, uh, he, he has some sort of faith, I'm not sure where he stands, but he, he's uh, certainly a, a regular attender at church. And uh, he was commenting that that marked him out as a bit of a freak amongst comedians. Uh, let me quote briefly. Uh, most of my friends in uh, the comedy profession ask, how can anyone with any kind of brain believe in God in 2011? It is incredibly cool on the comedy circuit to be an atheist. Actually, to be honest with you, to be a cool comic, you need three things. Incredibly tight jeans, you need to have hair that looks like a chrysanthemum, and you need to be an atheist. Well, I don't know about the others. But apparently you need those three things to be a cool comic. He went on, even when knocking God is not part of their routine, almost every stand-up has to do it for 30 seconds, because it's just cool. It's just a cool thing to do. Now, Frank Skinner's opinion of that was it's just a fad. It's the cool thing at the moment. It'll pass. People will move on to something else. Well, maybe. Jesus would say here, there's something inherent in human nature that wants to say, I don't need God. It's juvenile to believe in God. No one with half a brain believes in God. It's something very natural to humanity. A slightly stronger example, perhaps. Um, this is a couple of years ago, a few years ago now. There's an article in the newspaper in The Guardian, Polly Toynbee, who um, uh, would be fairly clear that uh, she would describe herself as an atheist. She was writing about the Narnia books, the C.S. Lewis Narnia books, obviously where uh, Aslan, the lion, is meant to represent Jesus Christ. And she clearly hates them. I mean, the title of the article, her article, was Narnia represents everything that is most hateful about religion. So, she, I mean, she's, you know, she's not wobbling on the fence there. She's pretty clear uh, what she thinks. And the article, it commended Harry Potter. She liked Harry Potter. Nice stories, good versus evil. But no, um, uh, what was her phrase? Pulpit bullying, as C.S. Lewis has. Uh, she, uh, let me give you a, a brief quote. Of all the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant is the notion of the Christ who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. Did we ask him to? I didn't. Now, Narnia represents everything that's most hateful about religion. You might think that's a little over the top. You might suggest that uh, mutilation of female genitalia amongst some Hindus in India, that's a bit more unpleasant than writing about a lion who dies for people. Or... Uh, driving an aeroplane into, uh, into a building that kills thousands of people. You might suggest that's a bit more unpleasant than uh, writing about a lion who dies for people. But do you see why she hates it so much? I don't want someone to die for me. 
the most repugnant thing I can think of is that someone else dies in my place. I hate that. It's very strong, isn't it? And tragically, sadly, I'd, I'd suggest, that's precisely what Jesus is describing here as wise and learned. An utter refusal to accept help from the living God. A determination, I can do this on my own. Tragically, I think that's what he's describing. Now, let's try and put this together. So uh, what is hidden? The relationship that uh, God the Father and Jesus Christ have, that Jesus is uniquely his son. Who are the little children? Those who say, God, I need help. I rely on you. Who are the wise and the learned? Those who say, I, don't, I am self-reliant. I do not need any help from God. Why does, why does Jesus get so excited by that? I mean, I praise you, God. It's so brilliant the way you set the world up that the, the humble, the, ch- the childlike, get to know about you and me and, and those who are proud do not. Why does he get so excited about that? I take it because it stops us from boasting. If you have to be like a toddler to come to God, that stops you from boasting. You can't be very proud. If we could find God through our own wisdom, we might celebrate ourselves too much. Foolish example, put it this way. Um, Saturday morning, uh, next week, this may or may not be your ideal Saturday, but Saturday morning the doorbell rings and uh, you go and open the door and, oh, it's Jamie Oliver. Hello, Jamie. And um, I recognize you from the TV. You're kind of everywhere. Um, and uh, he says, oh, yeah, hi. Uh, what I'd really love to do is cook for you today. And look, uh, here are my recipes, and here are the photos. Here's what I'm going to cook. And, you know, and there are you know, 50 different tapas for lunchtime and all sorts of wines he's brought. And um, you know, just a vast array of courses for the evening, all these photos and little descriptions of what they are. And it just looks fantastic. Uh, and he said, wow, that's, look at that. That looks phenomenal. He said, thank you very much. And he grabbed the recipes and slammed the door. And you spend the next few hours, you know, trying oh, recipes, all oh, they've got the ingredients. And you try and create all these things. And you end up with this starter, kind of, which is just a brown thing, a terrine. And there's a raw chicken dish and a burnt pudding of some kind or other. And eventually you say, oh, photo, oh. You open the front door. Can you help, please? Yeah, lovely pucker, in I come. And um, <laughs> in, 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 the, in the great man comes and uh, knocks up a storm. And, uh, and what happens at that point? What happens is you get to eat phenomenally well. And he takes the credit for it. And you say, you really are a pretty terrific chef. And he'll say, yeah, 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 but I want you to share it. I want you to enjoy that. And that is a foolish, but that is a little picture of what Jesus is getting excited about here. Father, I love the way you've established the world. The people come to you and they have to say help. And when they say help, you get the credit. They can't boast. There's no boasting for them. You get the credit, but they get salvation. They get to enter the most perfect relationship in the whole of eternity between you and between me. You get the credits, they get the joy, the pleasure. That's fantastic. That's win-win. I love it, says Jesus. It's brilliant. I praise you. Do you see? 
Now, so what? Let's, let me just try and push this in three little directions. Uh, three things. The first is this. Pursue wisdom. Let me give you them. Pursue wisdom, rediscover wonder, uh, ask for help. The first and pursue wisdom. Pursue wisdom. Verse 28, we come to these verses next week, but verse 28, Jesus says this, Father, only those who you reveal the truth to uh, will understand about you and me. Then he turns to the crowd in verse 28, come, come, come. Pursue wisdom. Now this may seem counterintuitive. If God is the one who reveals wisdom to children, why bother trying to find out anything at all? I don't know if you've seen the film The Matrix, it's a bit old now, but if you've seen the film The Matrix, the, the chief protagonist in it, Neo, he just has stuff downloaded into his head. That would be terrific, wouldn't it? So if you've seen the film, he just says, I want to learn Kung Fu. Okay, and he learns Kung Fu, and off he goes. Oh, I need to be a helicopter pilot. Can you download helicopter pilot, please? Oh, I can be a helicopter. Brilliant. Wouldn't that be useful? Wouldn't you just love that? You know, you find yourself... You know, oh, I'm about to miss the bus. Usain Bolt, download, and you catch the bus. I mean, fantastic, you know, just instant, whatever you need, it just gets downloaded straight away. That'd be terrific. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Father, you just reveal things. You know, walk along the road one day, I don't know, God's load of nonsense. Oh, no, he's not. It's just, my eyes have been opened. It's just been revealed to me. Is that what he's talking about? No, I don't think so. So, chapter 16, Peter says... Oh, yeah, I see now. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. He had been listening to Jesus for months. He had been wandering around, following Jesus, conversing one-on-one, watching Jesus. He'd been exposed to a lot of what Jesus was saying. And he'd thought about it. And God revealed the truth to him. To go hand in hand. Or one of the classic biblical texts... uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 7. Paul writes a letter to Timothy. He says, look, I'm writing the scriptures for you. But declares, Timothy, reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Timothy, your job, reflect on the scriptures, and the Lord will give you insight. The two go hand in hand together. So if you want God to reveal himself, more of himself... If you want God to transform your lives, what do we do? We reflect on what he's taught and trust that he reveals himself. We reflect on Jesus' words in the scriptures, God's words in the Bible, and God reveals himself. The two go hand in hand. You don't separate them out. That's how it works. So pursue wisdom. It has to be pursued. The two go hand in hand. So if you're not yet persuaded of the Christian faith, you've got to think about it. Don't just say, well, if it's true, at one point God will just sort of zing me and uh, that'll happen. Well, no, think about it. Reflect upon these things and God will reveal himself. Or we've been a Christian for 40 years and we're a little stagnant and things just, you know, just go a bit run through them. Well, reflect on the truth that God has revealed and he will give you insight. He'll reveal himself, more of himself. That's just how it works, biblically. So we have to pursue wisdom if we want God to reveal himself. Pursue wisdom. The second little thing, rediscover wonder, if I can put it that way. Children love stories. And children love stories about worlds that are different, other worlds and wizards and 
people who live forever. Children love those stories. There's a reason why J.K. Rowling has sold 83 million books or whatever she's up to at the moment. There is a reason for that. Children, brackets, and a few adults, love those sort of stories. But then, of course, um, we grow up and we know they're all nonsense and we put them aside. But... But there's something in them that reveals our longing for a world beyond this world. There's something in them that just that resonates with humanity. Now, I, I don't know what um, Polly Toynbee makes of Harry Potter now. I mean, that article I quoted, she wrote it before the last book came out. She may have been a bit annoyed about the last book. Because what happens in the last book? Harry, the the hero, he saves the world. How does he save the world? He saves the... I mean, if you have... You know, it's all nonsense, of course, in one sense. But he saves the world. How does he do it? By going into the forbidden forest and sacrificing himself. He wanders alone and dies on his own, separated from all his friends. And after his death, he rises again and conquers evil. Ah, that sounds a little familiar. (laughs) And 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 why why does the story... Well, she could have written the story a whole number of ways, of course. But there's something within us that says, yes, that's right. We, We want there to be a world beyond this world. We slightly long for a world beyond this world. A world where people live forever. And evil is conquered by good. And I take it that Polytoimy now hates Harry Potter just as much. But there's something just in us that resonates, that resonates, that we recognize. So when you become a Christian, it is very much a sense of rediscovering a childlike wonder. You rediscover, oh, there is more than just the relentless humdrum of life. There is more. Actually, God is wonderful. You realize again how exceptionally grand he is. And um, some of us, we may have been a Christian a long time and forgotten. When we became a Christian, it was exciting. It was like seeing snow-capped mountains for the first time. It was exhilarating, like uh, rushing along the the ocean in a yacht with the, the sails absolutely full of air. It was exciting. It was like galloping along on a racehorse, a little bit out of control, and yet the adrenaline flow. It was exhilarating. There was a childlike wonder there, and that's entirely right. And if we've forgotten that, well, let's rediscover it. Now, in UK culture, it is cool to be cynical. Now, if you're not a Brit, you might be immune to this, and good for you. But in UK culture, it's cool to be cynical. Listen, if you're Aussie, you're even worse, so don't laugh at me. But um, uh, that's, it's, that's just what we're like, often. I read something in the paper the other day, Henry Porter writing in The Observer. He wrote an article, come on cynics, look on the bright side. Uh, Popular culture as reflected in journalism, advertising, comedy or TV panel shows such as Mock the Week is infected with a world-weary cynicism and scorn. It's become a habit we can't shake off for fear of seeming hopelessly naive. There's much of that in our culture. You've got to be cynical. Don't trust anyone. Mock everyone. And if you don't... Well, you're, you know, you're a bit naive, really. It's cool to be cynical. It's cool to be negative and criticise. To be positive, to enjoy. Well, you know. 
You haven't experienced enough of life, probably, if you smile. There's something in that, in our culture. By contrast, let me read you a little bit. I read, I got into this theme a little bit and uh, reread uh, C.S. Lewis's little article. It's an essay he wrote on how you write st- um, stories for children. And uh, he makes a remarkably strong, um, a remarkably interesting point. Let me uh, maybe get it up on the screen. He puts it this way. To be concerned at being grown up, to blush at the suspicion of being childish, these things are the marks of childhood. Young things ought to want to grow up. But to carry on into middle life, this concern about being an adult, that's a mark of arrested development. Let me explain. When I was 10, I read fairy tales in secret. I would have been very ashamed if I'd been found doing so. Now that I'm 50, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, if you're afraid of someone accusing you of being childish, you're a child. Grow up. Don't be so influenced by other people. Grow up. If you're worried that someone might describe you as feeble for believing the Christian faith or feeble for considering the Christian faith. Oh, don't be so feeble. Grow up. If you're embarrassed by what, you know, and other people have that capacity to embarrass you, if you crumple because someone might criticize you, you're a child. If you're scared of being called childish, you're a child. If you're scared of being called foolish, you're a fool. Do you see what he's saying? Rediscover a childlike wonder. Don't be embarrassed by that. That's what the gospel does when you understand it rightly. See, God is wonderful. He does wonderful things for me. That's good. And I'm going to tell you about that. <laughs> You've got half a brain. I don't mind. I don't mind. Rediscover wonder. Last thing, very briefly. Ask for help. Ask for help. Children ask for help. Eventually. It may take them time. They may be stubborn for a little while. But they ask for help. And that's intrinsic to being a Christian, to ask for help. So yes, our role is to pursue wisdom as much as we're able to, to, to research, whatever it may be. In our, yes, to pursue wisdom, but to ask for help. So whatever it may be, in, in growing in the Christian life, to study the scriptures, but ask for help. Whatever it may be, in our, in our business places, in our workplaces, yes, of course, to, do, to be as diligent as employee as possible, to pursue as much research, to read as much, to, to greet as many people, to network as efficiently as we possibly can, but ask for help. Because essential to being a child is saying, Daddy, will you help me, please? Help. Let me give you this quote as we finish. Uh, this was a lovely quote that uh, came up to me in my quiet times on, didn't come to me, I read it uh, in my, on, um, on Friday morning. I found it lovely. How is it that many true believers often pray so coldly? What is the reason that their prayers are so feeble, wandering and lukewarm as they frequently are? Well, the answer is very plain. Their sense of need is not so deep as it ought to be. They're not truly alive to their own weakness and helplessness. And so they don't cry fervently for mercy and grace. Let's remember these things. Let us seek to have a constant and abiding sense of our real necessities. If saints could only see their souls as the, he's commenting on Luke 17, the ten afflicted lepers, we could happily say if saints could only see their souls as the 
child. Then they would pray far better than they do. Ask for help. That's what it is to be a Christian. To say, God, you're my father. I need your help. Then he reveals himself. Then he changes us. Then he transforms us. Then he's active. So certainly my desire, my hope, my prayer as a church, we would feel our weaknesses, our helplessness more acutely in the year ahead. Yeah, it'll make us pray. Both as individuals and corporately, it'll make us pray. Live as a child, says Jesus. Father, it's wonderful that you want people to be like a child. Be childish. I mean, pursue wisdom, yes, of course. But rediscover a childlike wonder. Ask for help. Be childish. Because rightly understood, that's wisdom in God's scheme. That's real wisdom, to be needy like a child. Let's pray together. Father, you, you know what our hearts are like, no matter how long we've known you or whether we'd even claim to know you. We don't want to be childish. We don't want to be dependent. We like to be in control and we like to have uh, resources at our disposal. But you say to us, come like a child, recognizing our need before you. So we pray that we would. And in doing so, great glory would go to you. And we would share in the blessings, more of the blessings of knowing you, and flourishing in our walk with you. We do ask it for our good, but for your glory also. Amen.